Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We've been making our way through the book of Ephesians for quite some time now, and we've come now to this section of Ephesians that's talking about how to walk wisely, especially walking wisely in the context of relationships with one another. We're turning now to our attention to that section dealing with walking wisely that talks about walking wisely in familial relationships, how a husband and wife walk wisely in their relationship with one another, how a parent and a child, how a child in relationship to their parents, how they walk wisely. And we're going to be spending the rest of the summer dealing with this topic of family relationships, faithful families, families that are being faithful to fulfill God's design for them. And I'm excited about this study, and I hope that you are as well. And so we're going to read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33 this morning. And uh, what you'll notice about our, our time together this morning is, is really we're not going to return again to the verses in verses 22 through 33 until the very end of our, our time together this morning. We're going to be dealing with some texts that are kind of introductory to Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, but we're going to begin it this morning. And so if you would, just stand with me as we read it together. Stand in honor of God and his word. Paul says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying, and I'm saying that it relates to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You may be seated. Let's pray that God would continue to bless our time of worship this morning. And Father, we, we do just pray for the, the principles that are enumerated here in your word. Father, this mystery is profound, and, and all of us in here, married, single, are, are somewhat of a, of a loss in how to understand this. And Lord, as, as husbands and wives who are here, we, we pray that you'd give us great insight into this mystery, that you'd allow us to experience the the oneness you call us to, and, and Father, help us all to understand this, how it relates to you and your church, and how we should all be drawn closer to you. Give us grace in this area this morning, we pray. Help those whose marriages are in trouble. I, I pray that this, these truths would encourage them and strengthen them by the power of your Spirit this morning. I pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. The game of chess is a very ancient game. It's not as ancient as the 
game of marriage, but it's still, nonetheless, a very ancient game. The essential rule of chess, the essential goal of chess is to checkmate or to, to trap your opponent's king. That's it. That's the way that you win at the game of chess, is to capture, to, to checkmate, to trap your opponent's king. All other goals in the game of chess are secondary to that primary goal of checkmating your opponent's king. Now, sometimes the inexperienced and sometimes the experienced chess player forgets that that's the primary goal. And you may be a, a, a novice chess player and you're playing the game of chess and you're capturing all these pieces and you look and you see that you've captured eight pieces and your opponent has only captured six and you think, I'm winning the game. And then suddenly you find yourself checkmated forgetting that your primary goal was not to accumulate a large number of pieces, but to checkmate the king. On the chessboard, there is the most important piece is the king, but secondary to the king is the queen. The queen is like the superman or the superwoman of the chessboard. I mean, she, just, uh, go, she can go all over the place in which direction and, and capture pieces. She is a force to be reckoned with. And sometimes, if you're a very ingenious player, you'll do this move. You'll do what's called the queen's sacrifice. And what you do in the queen's sacrifice is you take your queen and you place it in a position on the board so that your opponent can capture it. And your opponent looks to the queen and gets distracted from that goal of capturing or checkmating your king and protecting their own. They see your queen and they move some pieces out of the way of protecting their own king in order to capture your queen. And they get so excited about capturing this important piece, they fail to realize that you've set a trap for them. And through the, through the trap of the queen's sacrifice, you're able to move your chess pieces in and checkmate their king. Oftentimes, in our marriages, we fall prey to the queen's sacrifice. We forget what the ultimate goal of marriage is. And we get distracted by important goals, but goals that are secondary to our primary biblical goal. And so some of us may get distracted in our marriages with, with, with children, and uh, suddenly, our whole, the whole goal of our marriage becomes our children. And children are, are certainly important little beings in our family relationship, but they're not the most important goal in a marriage. Or maybe we get distracted with, with our emotional needs, and, and we think, you know what, I, I want my, my spouse to care for me, and I enjoy the, 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 the relationship that I have with her, I want her to be, uh, be, be able to, to be ministering to me, and we get distracted with our emotional needs, and that becomes our, our primary goal of marriage. And too often we find that we've fallen prey to forgetting what the most important goal in our marriage is. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we look at some texts that I believe are foundational to help us understand Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. Now, before we begin talking about that, let me just say a, a few things to some special groups that may be here this morning. Uh, first of all, I want to speak to those of you who are single this morning, and I want you to know that I've been praying for you this week. You've been on my mind and my heart quite a bit as I've been preparing what I would share with you from God's word this morning. 
and maybe you're you're here, you're young, and you're single, and and that's as you know as that's kind of part of your plan. And maybe you've been single for longer than you thought you would be. Uh, maybe you've been divorced and are, find yourself single now. Uh, maybe you're uh, uh, you've been widowed and your your spouse has 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 passed away, and you find yourself uh, a, a single person this morning. And and uh, I just want you to know that you've really been on my heart this week. I've been praying for you. And I would encourage you with a few things that I I believe that that are important for you to consider as we talk about the goal of marriage, because the temptation might be to say that this doesn't really apply to me. Or even worse, and and this is what, what I fear, that sometimes this discussion of marriage can be a very painful thing for a person who finds himself single. Maybe they have a desire to be married, but they certainly didn't have a desire to to, to lose their spouse or whatever happened, and, and now there's a great deal of pain when, when you speak of marriage. And, and so my, my prayer has just been that God would, would give you a great sense of, of peace this morning and, and excitement about what we talk about for several reasons. First of all, the first reason that I believe that it's important for you as a, a single person to, to think about God's principles for marriage is that some of you, unless the Lord returns very soon, some of you who are single now will be married someday. And so it's important for you to understand what God's goal for marriage is. And so I think it's helpful for you as as a preparatory thing. Some of you who are single, actually all of you who are single, know people who are married. And as a person who has brothers and sisters in Christ who are married, it's it's incumbent upon you to, to know how to pray for them. You say, you know what, I, I have this friend over here who's, who's married, and, and I know what God's principles are concerning marriage, and this person isn't able to, to live in accordance with those. I'm going to pray for them, and I know how to pray specifically for God to work in their hearts. Or maybe a person that, who's married is going to come to you, and, and you're going to be able to give them some, some very godly, biblical counsel because you understand the principles of marriage. Finally, and this is why I believe it's important for every person to know these principles of marriage that God gives us in his word, is because of this. Marriage is temporary, and marriage is a picture. Every single one of us, when we say our wedding vows, what do we say? Uh, till, till, till what do us part? Till death. Marriage is not eternal. Marriage is a temporary picture that points people to an eternal relationship with Christ. And this morning, even if you're a single person, as we talk about the biblical goal of marriage, what I hope that you'll be able to see as we, as we look at these principles is, oh, I, I kind of understand how this points to my eternal relationship with Christ. And yeah, I may not be experiencing the, the earthly picture of that right now, but I'm excited as I consider my eternal destiny. Every marriage in here should point to eternity. We'll continue talking about that as we go through the text this morning. I also want those of you who are married, who are perhaps in some, some painful uh, marriage situations, to know that I've been praying for you as well this week, and pray that the God of peace would really comfort you as you consider what God's word says about marriage. So again, uh, our goal as we talk about marriage is to think about the goal of marriage, to think about what the primary thing that God calls us to do in our marriage is, and we're going to talk about that as we go through some texts this morning. We're going to look at the design of marriage. We're first going to look at the design of marriage, what God desires marriage to be. We're going to look at the distortion of marriage in Genesis chapter 3, how this goal of marriage gets distorted. And then finally, we're going to look at the Ephesians chapter 5 
And as we look at Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to see the deliverance of marriage, how God redeems a marriage and calls it again to be that which he desires it to be. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And we're first going to look at the design of marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 33. Let me give you a little bit of the context as you turn there. God has just finished creating the universe. He has created all the, the stars. He's created the solar systems. He's created the galaxies. He's created it all. And now he's turned his attention to the world and he's created plant life and he's begun to, to create the animals. And, and here on day six, after creating this, this entire expanse of the universe, he turns his, his attention and begins working on planting a garden. <laughs> after creating the solar systems, he turns his hand to gardening. And he plants a garden, probably for somewhere in the Fertile Crescent, and he creates man. And man is the, the pinnacle of God's created order. You think about all the things that God has created, galaxies, universes, nebulae, whatever God has created, all this, and man stands at the pinnacle of creation. And the question is, what is God going to do with man? Maybe God will, will put man out on some sort of solar system somewhere, and, and man from the solar system will, will survey the galaxy and, and be involved in intergalactic travel and, and helping with the, the, the movements of stars and, and all sorts of uh, galactic responsibilities. What is, man, what is man going to do? What is the God who created the universe going to do with the pinnacle of, of his creation? We see in verse 15, God took man and put him in a garden. He took, he took the pinnacle of his creation, put him in a garden, and said, look, I want you to take care of the garden and work it and keep it. God, with his, so on his sovereignty, his sovereign will, entrusts man with this joy of taking care of the garden. We see then that the God also gives the man a command, verse 16. He says, look, you can eat of any tree of the garden, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now remember, day one, God separates light from darkness. End of the day, he says it's good. Day two, at the end of his creative work, he says it's good. Day three, good. Day four, good. Day five, good. Here on day six, not the end of the day yet. He's created the animals. He's created man. And he looks upon man doing this ministry that he's called him to do to care for the garden. And it's very interesting. What does he say? He says, this isn't good yet. This isn't how I've designed it to be. This isn't my final intention, my final plan for man. He looks upon man doing this ministry he's called him to do in the garden and says, it's not good yet. This isn't ideal. This is the first time that something negative is said by God in Scripture. As he looks at man alone in the garden, he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to what? I'm going to create a helper who is fit for him. Now, let me just press pause in the story here real quickly, okay? Again, uh, some of you who, who may be single, involved in ministry, say, well, what does that mean for me? 
if God looks at Adam and says, Adam isn't able to do this ministry in a good way because he's alone, does that mean that I'm not able to do the things that God has called me to do? Absolutely not. Keep your finger in Genesis. We're going to return to the story. But turn over to 1 Corinthians. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Then you come to 1 Corinthians. It's before Ephesians that we've been studying. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, or all throughout the book of Corinthians, uh, Paul is addressing questions that people have asked him about different areas of church life. And in chapter 7, what the people have asked him is, look, uh, Paul, is it good for a man not to have relations with a woman? Is it good for that not to take place in, in light of eternity coming? Is it good to be super spiritual and just abstain from that? And Paul says, no, 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 that's not the right way to act. You're married, you need to be involved in that aspect of your relationship, and you need to, to, to be close with one another. And then he comes to verse 6, and he said, look, the, the normal order of things is that a, a man and a woman are going to be married and engaged in ministry together. He says, but I make a concession, okay? This isn't normative, but I'm going to make the concession that sometimes, sometimes I say this, I wish that all men were as I myself am, that is, single, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so God gives some people, this isn't normative, but he gives some people the, the gift of, of celibacy, the gift of being a single person. And he says, uh, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good, it's interesting he uses that word there, right? It is good for them to remain single as I am. And so I think the principle is, is this, that a person who finds himself in a situation where God has them to be single is a person who still is called by God to be involved in ministry. And here we go back to Genesis. As Adam is involved in ministry, God doesn't say, look, Adam, take care of the, don't take care of the garden yet. Wait till I create a, a helper for you to come alongside you and do this. He says, Adam, do this ministry. And so a single person must understand, look, right now God has given me the gift of being single. There are some ministries that I'm going to be able to be involved in as a single person that are good in God's eyes. And I should be fully engaged in that. No matter what context in which God places me, I'm involved in ministry and excited about doing the things that God has called me to do. Now, the normative state of things, the way that things most generally happen, though not always, the way that things most generally happen is this. A person finds that they can do ministry more effectively with a spouse than without a spouse. And I believe that's what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 2. That ministry occurs most effectively for most people, though not always, in the context of a married relationship. God calls Adam to do these things and says, this isn't good. It's not good for him to be alone. And he says this, I'm going to make a, a helper fit for him. And then, then something kind of humorous happens next. Look at verse 19. Remember, he's, he's going back to what's, what's already taken place. He says this. He says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field. And every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The, the man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. And so what takes place is this. Uh, God, God knows what the problem is. God's identified the problem immediately. He knew it from before he even began the creative order, from eternity past. He sees 
Adam ministering in the garden says, you know what, it's not good for, Adam, for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. And then he doesn't do it right away. He parades all the animals in front of man and, and tells man to name them. So man goes, uh, dog, uh, elephant, um, kangaroo. And so he, he names each of the animals as they, as they come past and gives them his authoritative name over that, that creature. Whatever he names it, that's what its name is. And then, and then there's a problem. It says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. That word fit is a very important word. It doesn't mean, what, what the text isn't saying is this. Uh, Adam just couldn't get all the work done, and so he needed someone to help him out. You know, Adam could have done a lot of things. Adam could have gotten some of the monkeys together and said, look, guys, I got too much on my plate. I need to, to train you guys to, to do a little bit more around here. And the monkeys go, okay, oh, 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 and then done their thing, okay? Or, or I need the elephants to help me with the watering or something. That's, that's not what he's saying here. He says, I, I need a, a helper fit for me. And whenever God says, Adam, you need a helper fit for you, God isn't saying, look, Adam, someday you're going to be wearing socks and you're not going to be able to pick them up. Uh, and so you need a wife that will come alongside and pick up your socks for you, okay? And Adam goes, well, all right, sure, sounds good to me. That's not what he's saying. Sometimes we get really turned around here as we look at this idea of a helper, and we think, well, well, the wife, you know, she's supposed to come alongside the husband and, and do the work that he can't do or doesn't want to do. That, that's not what the text is saying. That word fit there means the, the opposite of, the, the matching part to. What Adam needed was a companion, a person who could come, come alongside him, and together, in companionship, they could do the ministry that God had called them to do. And as Adam looks at the dog, you know, the dog was cute, but, but not really man's best friend. God, you know, he looks at, he looks at the, the armadillo and says, you know, I, I don't think that's going to be a great uh, late-night conversation partner, okay? Not going to cut it for me. I need a companion, I need a friend. I need a person that I can relate to. I need a person that I can do this ministry God has called me to in, in, in companionship. And so what does God do? Does this. It says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to man. So Adam wakes up. God says, Adam, I got something I want to show you. What's, what's up, God? Check this out. I'm going to bring you something. What does Adam do? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Let's see that. No, what does he say? At last! At la oh, this is awesome, God! At last, this is like, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I, I, I need to name her, right? I'm supposed to name her. A uh, woman! She was taken out of me. He's excited. He's, he's excited about this gift that God has given him of a woman. And then the text tells us the theology behind the story we've just read. This is the theology here. Pay close attention. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the design of marriage, that a husband and wife would be involved in a one-flesh relationship. They would leave all other relationships and cleave to one another. 
whenever you're, you watch a swimming event, maybe in the Olympics, maybe a swimmer's swimming a 200-meter race, and you don't evaluate how successful that 200-meter race is based upon how well you're doing at 50 meters, right? Or 100 meters, or 150 meters. The winner of the race is a person who wins at 200 meters. And 50 meters is only important as far as it relates to your success at 200 meters. It's the person who touches the wall first at 50 meters doesn't stop and say, yeah, I'm done, 50 meters, champion of 50 meters right here. It's a 200 meter race. In marriage, sometimes we're tempted to gauge how well we're doing on goals that aren't the ultimate goal God has for marriage. So we say, well, you know what, uh, things are really peaceful at home right now, and so I must be achieving God's goal for marriage, or my kids are, are really cute kids, and so I think we've done well in marriage here, or, or my, my children are making good grades, or my children are great athletes, or my children, my children, my not the goal of marriage, not the goal of marriage. I want to talk about three kind of related truths before we give the main application here. The, the, one related truth is this, three related truths, but the first truth is this, the goal for marriage is not our goal, but the goal that God establishes, right? The goal for our marriage isn't the goal we come into marriage with and say, you know what, my, my goal for my marriage is that, that this would happen or that would happen. That's not how we determine our goal. We determine the goal based upon what God says the goal of marriage is. The second related truth to that is that as we pursue God's goal in marriage, we're going to pursue our greatest joy. It's only by pursuing what God says the goal of marriage is that we're ever going to have true, ultimate, eternal satisfaction in that marriage relationship. The last related truth to that, the last related truth is that the goal of marriage is oneness. The goal of marriage is that we would glorify God by pursuing oneness with our spouse. And there's a lot of goals that are going to come up in marriage, but the goal to keep our, our eye on, the, the prize that we, that we pursue, is oneness with our spouse. The main application is this, that as we think about the design of marriage, we must pursue oneness with our spouse. The design of marriage means that we must pursue oneness with our spouse. Now let's look at, at the distortion of marriage. Uh, turn over to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the story of the fall. So you have the, the created order, and the created order is, is Adam is excited about Eve. Now in that story in Genesis chapter 2, you see that there's, uh, there's, there's a hierarchy of relationship. Man has authority in, in some senses over the woman. He's, he's given the, 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 the responsibility of naming her. It's, uh, he's the one that's called to ministry. She's come alongside to, in companionship to help him with that ministry. But it's a perfectly harmonious relationship. Then comes the fall. And we see the fall as, as Adam eats the fruit. She, she's deceived by the serpent. She gives it to Adam. He also eats of the fruit. And then God comes and he, he calls each of them to account. And listen to the, what the words that he says to the woman. He says this in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now sometimes when we read verse 16, we read the first half and, and uh, you know, we think, that, boy, that doesn't sound very pleasant. In fact, whenever uh, Whitney and I were pregnant with our first children, I did a little Bible study where we went through all the, the passages that talk about how painful childbearing is. Uh, didn't go over very well. Um, 
So we read the first half of verse 16, and we think, not good. And then we read the last half of verse 16, and oh, well, uh, her desire will be for a husband. That's not so bad, right? She's going to really like her husband a whole bunch, and he will rule over her. Uh, that doesn't sound so great, but, uh, but the last half seems better than the first half. Not so. We have to understand what that word desire means. We see it used later on in the story of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, you remember they have the story of, of Cain and Abel. And in, in, verse, in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 4, God says this to Cain. Cain is struggling with his hatred that he has towards Abel, and he's, he's angry that God hasn't accepted his sacrifice. And this is what God says to, to Cain. Look, if you, don't, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And he uses a phrase that's, that's very similar to what we saw in the last chapter, what he said to, to, to Eve. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That desire means a, a desire to overtake, to, to overwhelm, to usurp, to, to overthrow. And that idea of ruling is, is a harsh, defeating rule. And so what God is saying to Eve here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, is that as, as sin has entered this relationship, some bad things are going to start happening. Before, this authority structure, this relational structure, had existed kind of like the, the authority structure within the Trinity. And just as God the Father exercises some uh, authority over the other members of the Trinity and, and stands as, as the, the head of that, that, that perfectly harmonious relationship, the husband had this authority over the wife, but it was an authority that was a sacrificial authority, this authority that was a desire to, to lead his wife and to love her, and, and the, the wife desired to, to come alongside her husband and, and, and to serve and, and to, to encourage him, and it was a, a perfectly harmonious relationship. Now, sin has entered the picture. And now, he says, Eve, your desire is going to be for your husband. There's going to be a, a desire within you to usurp the authority that God has given your husband and to overthrow him. You're going to want to, to place yourself where God has placed your husband. And husband, it's not going to be any better for him. Instead of having a desire to serve you, he's going to have a desire to rule you. It's not going to be a pleasant picture. That's the struggle that we're going to have now, the obstacle we're going to have to fulfilling what God has said marriage is to, to be, and how it's to look. Several applications here as we think about this truth that this distortion, marriage has been distorted. One, I think applications that we just have to ask God for wisdom, you know. That we as husbands would just pray to, to God that he would give us the, the ability to, to be gentle husbands. So many husbands struggle with, with gentleness, with peacefulness. And wives uh, need to ask God just for, for great wisdom to be able to resist the temptation to usurp the roles that God has called their husbands to. And sometimes it can be uh, so hard for a wife because she just says, you know, my husband isn't doing what he needs to do, and so I need to do it. And, and it's just a constant struggle to, to step back and, and trust the Lord in our relationship with our, our husbands and wives. We need to be very careful, be very careful about distorting God's purpose of marriage. Remember, the, the purpose is to pursue oneness, this distortion of marriage means that we're going to pursue things that are going to naturally divide us. And so as husbands and wives, we need to be very careful against pursuing those things that might drive a wedge between us. There's one marriage relationship that, um, it might be going too far to say I, I understand it, 
but I know it better than any other marriage relationship, and that's my own, right? Um, I, it's fair to say I take great joy in it, but it's a constant a joy to continue to, to learn and, and understand it more. Now, let me just share with you a few things uh, that Whitney and I have done in our marriage to, to fight against disunity, and I, I don't mean to, to, set up, to set us up as a, as a perfect example. Those of, us, those of you who know me know that we're not a perfect example on, on all areas of of our relationship, but I believe that we've experienced a great deal of success by God's grace in this area of, of unity and, and oneness. Uh, one thing we've done is this. Um, when we got married, or when we got engaged, we began looking at other marriages around us, and, and we found something that, that took place very commonly, and what took place was this um, just joking about marriage, okay? And so a, a husband would talk about you know, how, you know, my wife, she's a spender, blah, you know, or, you know, my wife, you know, you, my husband, the doofus, uh, it would just be this, this constant kind of, they're joking, but it wasn't always funny, you know, and it was hard to understand where that line of humor began, or where that line of humor ended, and where the truth began, and so Whitney and I made this commitment, we said, you know what, uh, we're not going to engage in jokes at each other's expense, and to a large part, we've been uh, successful in that, and you'll notice whenever I tell illustrations, or I try to do this when I tell illustrations in, in church about my wife or our family, I'm not telling illustrations that would make uh, Whitney look bad. And in fact, she told me this, this last week. She goes, maybe you better just put a couple in that make me look bad because people are going to get the wrong impression of me. I said, not, not in my eyes, sweetie. Uh, <laughs> I know how to. <laughs> but I, I honestly believe that. I said, you know what? I, I respect you so much. I love you so much, I don't want others to, to think that I don't respect you. And that's what the tendency of jokes can be. So I'm going to be very careful to, to avoid disunity by, by making jokes, because the natural tendency of a relationship under our fallen condition is, is to, be dis, to have disunity instead of unity. We also, uh, we also had this, this commitment that we made in our engagement period to, to, to do what we call the united front. Okay? And almost what we said is, look, there's going to be a natural tendency— when we're in an argument with one another and a disagreement with one another, to bring other people into the conflict. So to, to go and, and talk to a friend or a family member and say, boy, can you, can you believe what Daniel did? You know, can you believe that he said that? And they'll say, I can't believe that. Well, he did. Um, or, or to do things like that. And so the, what we said is, you know what? Um, we're, never, we're not going to bring other people into our conflict in that manner. We're united in this. There's no one else in this marriage relationship. We're not going to seek unity with other people, especially in a conflict situation. Now, if, if something happens where we have a disagreement and we need some biblical counsel or we need some accountability to, to solve in a biblical way, then of course we're going to talk to other people about it, but with the, the goal of restoration, not with the goal of a sympathetic ear to encourage us in some perhaps unbiblical attitudes. And we also, we also, just, uh, we also committed to ministry together. We also committed to ministry together. When I was interviewing uh, to come on staff at Bethany Baptist Church, we got some advice from a person who was an elder. At that time, they were a deacon. We've changed over to elders. We got some advice from a, a deacon that was, uh, frankly, very bad advice. We were in this interviewing process, and they asked us about our ministry at our, our previous church. I said, well, I was involved in, in youth ministry. And Whitney said, well, I was involved in youth ministry with, with Daniel. And this, this deacon said this. He said, well, you know, uh, that's great, but, but Whitney, you really need your own ministry. 
you really need to, to be involved in, in things that, that just are, are just for you, and, and Daniel can be involved in some things that are, that are just for him. And I think that's a real violation of, of Genesis chapter 2. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to, to, to do a women's Bible st- study apart from your husband or, or to be involved in some, maybe a, a mother's a preschool ministry apart from your husband, but understand this, all ministry that you're involved in as a husband and all ministry that you're involved in as a wife ultimately is, is family ministry. And you're not pursuing ministries apart from your spouse. Those ministries that you're pursuing are in conjunction with the ministry that you have together as a family. And so as Whitney's involved in a mother's or preschooling ministry, it's, it's this ministry that she's involved in as, as kind of a continuation of her, her ministry with our children. And as she's discipling women in the church, it's, it's a continuation of our relationship together. And as I stand up here on a Sunday morning, it's not just me. It's, it's, I've talked this over with Whitney, and we're in this, we're in this whole ministry together. The natural tendency, the natural tendency of a husband and wife is to pursue those things that would bring about disunity, be it hobbies, be it alone time, be it whatever. Make sure that all those things that you pursue are done with the ultimate goal in your marriage of pursuing oneness for the glory of God. That's the distortion of marriage. The distortion of marriage means this. It means we must fight the pull toward division. We must resist, we must fight, we must resist the pull toward division. Now finally, I said we're going to touch upon this at the very end, and I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 5, understanding the context now of the purpose of marriage. And here in Ephesians chapter 5, we see marriage redeemed. The goal of marriage is oneness. We exist in perfect unity in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve as our representatives stand stand there, and there's no division between them. They're in perfect unity with themselves and with God. The fall happens, and there's there's this distancing that takes place between them. There's this natural pull apart, and now marriage can be redeemed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember what we've seen in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, we, we talked about how we were children of wrath. And then it talked about in Ephesians 2 how, how we've been brought together by God. God is the God. Jesus is the, 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 the Christ who has bridged these divisions between, between people and people groups. And now a husband and wife who before stood divided now have the opportunity through faith in Jesus Christ to be part of a new family and united together. And Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that we're new creations in Christ, and we're now no longer who we used to be. Now we're these new creatures, and we're to walk in accordance with that. And so now, no longer do we have to say, well, you know what, that's just who I am. I'm I'm kind of different from my spouse in whatever area. Now, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have been brought together, have the ability, these new natures, to walk in obedience to God. Last couple weeks in Ephesians 5, we saw that we've also been filled with the Holy Spirit. He gives us the ability to pursue oneness in our marriage. He causes us to be involved in this marriage relationship that points others to the spiritual reality of the relationship between Christ and his church. And over the coming weeks, we're going to talk, first of all, with husbands, the next two weeks, and the following two weeks with wives, about how you can fulfill that purpose that God has for you to pursue oneness. And those of you who are single are going to have the opportunity to see a goal. You're also going to have to see how do you can encourage others. And you're going to see how God would have you relate to him on into eternity. It's been a bad week for marriages, right? I think it was on 
earlier last week that 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 uh, television television show um, John and uh, John and Kate plus eight that that marriage went by the wayside. Uh, Mark Sanford, who had been kind of one of my guys that I was watching, kind of excited about his political career, uh, showed as, as the governor of South Carolina indicated that that their marriage was on the rocks. And some very interesting statements came out of the spouses, the wives in both those relationships. They said, you know, we've, we've been in the marriage, uh, I'm pursuing this, uh, my goal is for the kids. Okay, my goal is for the kids. For those of you who are married, I'd ask you just to think about this week. What's your goal? What's your goal? Why are you married? Maybe when I ask you that question, you lean over your spouse, why are, I forgot, why are we married again? It's been a while. Why are you married? What's your purpose? What's your goal? The kids? Is it divorce is kind of messy? Or is your goal the glory of God? You have a desire to pursue oneness, the glory of God, so that others can look at you and see there's something different about their lives. They've been transformed by the gospel by placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. As we think about the deliverance of marriage, what it means is this. We pursue oneness. We pursue oneness in marriage through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pursue oneness in marriage through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's going to be the subject of our study in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, for this good news of Jesus Christ that allows us to come into relationship with you. And I pray that you'd give the, married, the, the people who are married here, great grace. That you would just lavish them with your grace so that they can pursue oneness with their spouse. And Father, we pray that there are some here who have not placed their faith in you, that they would do so for the forgiveness of their sins, that they would receive a new life that would cause them to be able to pursue you in this area of their life as well. And, and Father, for those, for all of us, single, married, we look forward to the day that we experience perfect unity oneness with you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.